Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. All right, guys, take three, episode 189. I'm Jack. Dave's over here. Dee's back there. Uh, Ismail Ish Viegas is our guest today. Uh, this is going to be a recorded episode because we have some weather coming through New York and uh, it's killing our internet. So adapt and overcome. Uh, Ish, let's just jump right into it, man. Uh, if you could just tell us sort of uh, what was your path into the Air Force? All right. Um, thank you for having me. Um, it's an honor. Uh, <laughs> Talking to you guys and being the first combat controller. Thank you your for show. your patience. Oh, dude, no worries. <laughs> I couldn't get my mic started, so you know you guys put up with me first. Um, but anyway, yeah, I I grew up in Mexico, uh, or I I was born in Mexico City, and uh, so I spent a lot of time down there. Um, you know, even after my parents immigrated to the U.S., I, I was pretty young. But uh, I would spend all my summers down there, and I'd always watch uh, the soldiers come down from the mountains, and, you know, they all had guns, and, you know, I, I mean, I knew they were conventional army, but and, and my grandfather hosted them all the time. So, you know, I'd hear their stories and whatnot and who they were hunting. Um, so that kind of started getting me interested in, uh, you know, kind of military service, Not obviously not on the Mexico side, but uh, having come to America and, you know, having lived extremely poor when we were in Mexico and having the opportunity, you know, it's, it's, it was something that I wanted to do for my country. Um, I wanted to do a service because even growing up poor here in America, like, I mean, you, you truly don't know how great this country is, you know, unless you've actually lived in a third world country, you know, and I, I had that experience. I knew what I had and uh, I knew how blessed I was. So I wanted to give something back, you know, and my entire uh, growing up, my entire childhood, I knew that I wanted to join the military. I wanted to do special ops uh, specifically. Um, I grew up watching, you know, shows like Tour Duty and you know, Charlie Sheen's Navy SEALs and all that right. stuff, like, you know, just badass movies. And so that's something that always piqued my interest. And so when I first started looking during high school, 
um, I kind of started looking at the Navy. I started looking at the Army and, you know, the Marine Corps, like, you know, take three. The Marine Corps, it never really interested me. You know, my buddies kept coming back and said, hey, man, you, you know, you don't want to do it. <laughs> Just go a different route. And I was like, all right. You know, so uh, I went and talked to the Navy recruiter and they weren't taking guys right out of basic training. You know, my thought process was like, I don't want to be on a boat for two years. That's all I knew about the Navy. It was a boat, you know, and the army didn't have the x-ray program at the time. And I was like, man, I don't want to go into the regular army and, you know, who knows what's going to happen then. So I was pretty bummed out. I was depressed. And, you know, I just walked out of his office and I got greeted by the air force uh, recruiter next door down. And he looked at me and he's like, Hey man, you know, what's up? You know, you look, look a little bummed. I'm like, yeah, man, I, I am, you know, it's like, I, uh, I wanted to join these services and here's why. And he's like, well, Hey, have you thought about joining the air force? And I'm like, man, you guys have nothing for me. You know, right. at the time I had no idea that they were the Air force actually had, you know, a couple soft units, PJ and CCT and, you know, PJs write a lot of books. So everybody knows about PJs. <laughs> Um, and they were great, you know, Vietnam, uh, they were instrumental saving lives all the time. Um, so he brings me in and he's like, yeah, man, um, here's a pamphlet kind of, they didn't know much about the job at the time. And he's like, yeah, these guys, you know, they get to work with the seals. They get to work with the green berets. They get to work with all kinds of soft forces. And, you know, you get all the cool toys that these guys do and you get, you know, you shoot, move and communicate. And I'm like, awesome. I'm like, my first question was, um, can you join right out of basic training? And he said, yeah, absolutely. You know, so I signed up six months prior. Um, I was finishing up summer school, so I graduate on time. And I came in shortly thereafter. Um, I enlisted before, you know, the, uh, delayed, the delayed entry program. Mm-hmm. And I came into basic training August 6, 1997. And, uh, that was my path into the Air Force. So what was uh, the pipeline like uh, to become a CCT? Uh, obviously, it was, a, it was a hell of a lot different back then. And uh, I want to say they, they dimed it uh, the new breed. Um, and that's basically because Combat Control joined uh, into the pararescue pipeline. Mm-hmm. So it was PJs and controllers going through together. And, you know, at, at the time, it was kind of sheer luck. I signed a contract for combat control and, you know, they lined us up. And it just so happened that um, I was chosen as uh, a combat controller. And I don't know how the cadre did it back then, but they're like, you look like a controller. You're going to be a controller. I'm like, all right, sounds good. That's what I wanted anyway. You know, and so very, very different. It was 10 weeks. Um, and it was basically just a kick in the balls. Uh, from morning to evening um it was you spent your first half of the day uh pretty much getting your you know your balls kicked in uh a lot of push-ups a lot of pull-ups a lot of running um and then the other half of your day was spent in the pool so you know getting basically to the point of exhaustion every single day and the pool was always the great equalizer Mm -hmm. um it didn't matter how strong you were. It didn't matter how fast you were. Once everybody got in that pool, everybody was on the same playing field, you know, and it, that's the place where grown men cry. So 
And ultimately, that's what those guys in is the pool. What what was it about the pararescue CCT selection phase? Why did they focus on the pool so much? Because you associate that with SEALs and then later with like special forces, pre-scuba and things like that. But why was it so focused on on these Air Force assets? You know, I think it's because uh, obviously we we are Air Force. So when you think of Air Force, you think of, you know, these guys that work behind a desk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you don't really think of soft when you when you look at the Air Force. And, you know, the PJs have had that selection for a while, but um, I've never actually inquired about it. But, you know, I think the thought process behind it is we are going to work with the SEALs Mm -hmm. and we are going to work with the Green Berets and we have to have that ability. We have to have that same mental fortitude that these guys have if we're going to be successful. So, you know, it's kind of the thought process where we have to do our job and we also have to be able to do, you know, the same things that our soft brethren can do as well. So, um, and, and it's a huge gut check as well. You know, it, it, it if you can't handle the pool, um, you're probably looking for a different job because uh, the pool is the place where it either makes you or it breaks you. Mm-hmm. And for, uh, I was just going to ask for anybody listening to this, who's thinking about going in for a PJ or CCT, you know, a, a young adult who's looking at those as career fields. What, how do they get ready for something like that? Because you obviously didn't, it doesn't sound like you were, you spent a long time preparing for that prior to going in. No, man, I, I actually did very little preparation. Um, you know, I joined a gym. Uh, I started swimming in, in the lake of all places, you know, which is not the place to start. So if you're listening, don't do what I did, you know, safe, uh, do safe swimming in a pool let the lifeguard know what you're trying to do um they usually get you they they let you get away with a little bit more um but i had no idea you know i was 130 pounds soaking wet and i actually think i was 128 pounds coming in but you know i had no idea how to work out i had no idea uh the physical fitness you know what level of conditioning your body actually has to be in um it's changed a little bit, but the concept is very, still very much the same. It's all about endurance. Um, and it really, it's pushing your body to whatever the past test is at the time, but you still keep pushing it. You know, like when I used to do the recruiting job, I, I teach guys, like, man, pass the past test, and you should be able to take it at least two more times and still pass it, you know? Um, once you know you can pass the pass test, like start working your body beyond its limits. And, you know, yeah, it's a lot of uh, calisthenics, but at the same time, you know, it's, uh, you have to condition your body all around. So you have to be well-rounded, you know, it's, it's not just legs, it's not just chest, you know, and, um, you have to have the speed, you have to have the power, you have to have the endurance, um, and start surpassing those limits that are set by the pass test. Um, and, and but now that I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just say, is what about the mental aspect? Because you went in not well prepped, 128 pounds, maybe 130 if we're gonna, you know, give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, and you saw guys quit all around you. I imagine you had a high, you know, a high attrition rate in your class. 
What was it about you mentally going through that course that set you apart from other people? You know, that that's one of the things that we, that I wish we had a magic formula for because I couldn't tell you how I, you know, how to, I can't tell you what guy's going to make it. I can't tell you what guy's going to fail. You know, I, like I have seen Olympians, guys that I could not physically smoke, just phenomenal athletes. And for whatever reason, they end up quitting, and, you know, and then I've also seen on the other spectrum is guys that, you know, like myself who haven't worked out a lot, um, are hurting the entire way. We're lagging behind, but they don't quit, you know? And I think it's heart is one of the, one of the biggest indicators, like kids who have heart, like, I mean, I'm telling you, they, it's something about them that they just continue to go like uh, me and myself, you know, when I was going through, yeah, I thought about quitting every day. Uh, but my thought process at the time was like, I am not going to quit. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to have to take me out of here in a body bag, you know, or whatever the case, but, or they're going to have to force me to quit, but I'm not, I'm not quitting. Um, you know, for me, I used my mother a lot. Uh, every time I felt sorry for myself, every time I, you know, I was like, man, I can make the pain go away mm-hmm. is I thought about my mother. You know, obviously she brought us to America and we were extremely poor. And I was like, man, I'm doing it for her. I'm doing it because, you know, the trials and tribulations that she went through getting us here, you know, the the sacrifices that she made, uh, housing us, feeding us, you know, working. And in the back of my mind, I wasn't going to give up because I wasn't going to let her down, you know. And I, I think it's just digging really deep and having that mental fortitude and you know, like I said, it's hard to determine who actually has it, but it's like, you have to have that mindset of like, I will make it, you know, and let them eliminate you. Don't get it in your head that you're going to quit. Cause as soon as you start thinking it, it just makes it easier and easier to basically just want to give up, you know, what was the next step in the pipeline after selection? <clears throat> so once you uh, we graduated selection, uh, which was basically preparing us for dive school. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, it was uh, the uh, Army Dive School, Special Forces Underwater Operations. Um, so it, Key West, which, I mean, that in and of itself was one of the biggest gut checks, you know, <laughs> beyond our selection. I mean, it was it was the selection. And, I mean, it really humbled you. And uh, so the, everyone had to make it through dive school. I imagine they front loaded it for that reason because it was so difficult uh, to see who, who could you know make it through that next phase, that next check. And uh, and then what what was after dive school? Um, it it, uh, it all kind of varied uh, depending on uh, the schedule. You know, we had mm-hmm. uh, uh, the uh, the dunker, the helicopter rolls you over in the pool, and you got to escape it. Um, and then after that was uh, static line school and then uh halo school shortly after that um then we went out to uh air traffic control school because we are also certified air traffic controllers you know and that's atc is what is our primary mission set um it is what we start as you know we jump in with the rangers we set up the airfields uh we bring in the the 
aircraft, helos, uh, fixed wing, and all the follow-on forces. And then we jump in with uh, whatever forces are coming in, and we go out and work and you know start doing the close air support business. How, how long is air traffic control school? Air traffic control school is about three months long. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it, you know, it, it's a different kind of hard in and of itself. Cause you know, ATC, yeah. you're basically learning a different language. Um, and it's very intense too. Cause now you got aircraft, you know, in the sky. So it's like the last thing you want is, you know, metal on metal because you can't separate, you know, the two. So, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty intense, it's mentally intense. It's, I mean, it's still physically intense cause you're still having to maintain your uh, physical fitness, you're still getting uh, smoked by the instructors. Um, you're still having to do pretty much a lot of the same stuff that you did at the initial indoc, the selection course. Maybe uh, this would be a good point, Ish. Actually, if you could explain the difference between combat controllers and joint terminal attack controllers, uh, and, and some of, some of those other elements out there, like what what is the CCT job? So yeah, CCT. We are basically our our primary mission set is air traffic control. We do it in, a, in an austere uh, environment. So that that's our bread and butter. <clears throat> we also do, uh, you know, we're surveyors, dirt landing strips, um, uh, jump uh, drop zones, uh, helicopter landing zones, and, you know, forward air refueling points. Um, but along the way, uh, we were asked, back when I came through, about 10% of the force was JTAC qualified. And a lot of it was, you know, Hey, you're really, you sound really great on the mic. Um, you can control aircraft really well. Do you want to try this? And that's kind of how I got started in the whole JTAC world. Uh, so for us, JTAC is an additional certification, you know, combat controllers by nature are all uh, not joint terminal attack controllers, but you know, we're, we're flexible and nine 11 is kind of what led us to really hone our skills as far as joint terminal attack controllers. And, you know, now I think we're doing a little bit of downsizing on that, but, you know, we also have uh, tech P's mm-hmm. um, and that's a whole separate career field, which, you know, we kind of brought a few of them into the uh, special operations community. And so I think it's about 10% of their force is the soft tech P but a lot of what they do is, you know, the big army. Um, they do close air support for uh, battalions, you know, the, the big maneuver elements. They do a lot of the air tasking orders, allocating assets to the guys that are downrange um, in their, you know, airspaces. Um, uh, so they deal a lot more with the whole conventional process uh, versus us. You know, we get our own designated airspace. They send us our aircraft, and we're just responsible for that. TACP, send them to us. So, I mean, those guys go out as well, and, you know, they they control our traffic. But they are the subject matter experts at the entire JTAC process. Uh, We are experts in it, but we do it in a more unconventional role. Yeah. Let me uh, give a quick shout-out to the sponsors of this podcast. Um, Tonight we have uh, Groove Life groovelife.com uh 
if you go and check them out, they make uh, wallets and belts and stuff like that. And I'm wearing one of them today. Don't worry. This isn't going anywhere. That it can't be on YouTube. Uh, Wait, is this going to devolve into? No, a, no, no. It's not going to devolve. We can't show that stuff on YouTube. But I'm wearing one of these right now. I uh, hope you guys will go and check them out. Uh, they make a lot of nice belts. You, you want to show off that wallet oh, yeah. real, real quick, Dave? Uh, it's GrooveLife.com slash TeamHouse. And you can use the promo code uh, TEAMHOUSE to get uh, 20% off your order. So that's GrooveLife.com slash TEAMHOUSE. And use the promo code uh, TEAMHOUSE to get 20% yeah. off your order. And if you like front pocket wallets, uh, you know, for cards uh, with a little money clip and stuff, like, they have these really nice wallets in addition. And, uh, like, check out their belts, though, because they have a lot of really cool. Yeah, they do. Uh, some of them are on back order, but they have a lot of cool Marvel stuff. They have a lot of cool. Uh, yeah, they make uh, they make watch bands and rings, too. It's a great website. Yeah. GrooveLife.com. And, and our second sponsor for tonight's show is Battling Blades. I know we've shown off uh, this uh, sword before. But yes. We also got these cool dice. Yes. So for any of you tabletop gamers out there, like uh, Jack and I, they have amazing uh, swords, uh, axes, hatchets, knives, any like anything you're looking for for your collection, they have it when it comes to bladed weapons. They'll do customs. They have really badass dice sets. Um, you know, if... if uh, you know, really cool metal. Yeah, uh, they have great LARPing gear. You know, if you're gonna go to the next Ren Fair, or you know, if you're you know Fireball, Fireball, <laughs> and the uh, SCA or whatever. So that's BattlingBlades.com, and if you use the promo code TeamHouse, you get twenty percent off your order. So again, BattlingBlades.com, and use the promo code TeamHouse. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, yeah, I, uh, so one of the things that I remember, you know, like <clears throat> one thing, like, so I was in regular battalion in the late nineties and we had a tack P that was there, you know, that was assigned to us. That was always there. And then the CCTs, if we were doing a, like an airfield seizure, you know, uh, for training or something like that, that's when the CCTs would show up on their badass little mini bikes and things like that. And I don't know how it was when you were there, Jack, if, if the CCT, CCTs were more attached to you at that point I, in time? I remember we had, like, every... I mean, I remember JTACs. I remember TACPs. I remember CCTs. I mean, it probably just... Everyone was so busy, it probably just depended yeah. from deployment to deployment. But, but the thing that really separates the CCT is that, is that in addition to the close air support, you guys also bring that, that airhead responsibility where... Like you said, surveying an airfield, bringing like being an air traffic controller when there's no tower, when there's no radar, when right. But you've but you're bringing in ground troops and you're bringing in supplies. Just just to bring in all to further paint the picture a little bit, like when Ranger Battalion jumps into some remote airfield somewhere, there's a guy like Ish sitting there with his rucksack with like a radio mic in each hand, like actually acting as the air traffic control tower for all of these C-17s and C-130s who are coming in and to land. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's really where we made our uh, money right there, you know, where we kind of established a lot of our credibility is, 
we, you know, the way I describe it to kids is like, man, we do anything air to ground or ground to air. You know, we, we, we have that capability, you know, and then on top of it, we can also shoot. We, you know, we can hang with you guys because yeah. you guys bring a very unique, special skill set to it. And we're very adaptable. And I, you know, I guess that's uh, the soft community in general. Um, I think that's what makes us pretty special. Ish, one of the things I've always been amazed about, about CCTs, JTACs, TACPs is when, when they're like, when the fight is really heavy. And, and it's just like the world is coming down on you. And you hear squad leaders and team leaders on the radio like, ah, you know, uh, you know, contact left, you know, blah, blah, blah. The, the CCT guys will sit there with like three different, <laughs> three different mics or two different mics and just be calm as, you know, like cool as a cucumber. Is that something that, like, how does it happen? Is it, is, is it, is it like, is that selected for do guys who just cannot maintain their sense of like, you know, being, is it something you learn? Like, how does that happen? No. So, you know, my entire career, I've kind of had to learn things on the fly. Um, so I was taught a certain way. Um, and back then it was a lot of static OP cast, you know, and then, you know, it, that's all I knew how to do it. 9-11 kicks off. And so now I'm with the teams and I'm shooting, moving. You know, I'm in a Humvee. I'm walking around. You know, we're in a gunfight. You know, we're no longer static. And I'll tell you what, my first gunfight, I was like a chicken with my head cut off. Like, man, I was all over the place. And, uh, you know, my team sergeant, he was a third group guy at the time. I mean, he reaches over, grabs my shoulder. He looks me square in the eye. You know, and he was cool, calm, and collected. And he's like, ish, calm down. In the middle of a gunfight, you know, and I was like, oh, shit, okay, yeah, I got it. You know, so, you know, I kind of turned everything else off, and I started focusing on what I needed to do. And, you know, uh, that deployment taught me a lot. And I'm like, man, we have to change the way we train our guys. You know, so... When we came back, we started uh, implementing, you know, now, so now I'm kind of getting more as, uh, you know, as the seasoned guy. And uh, we started coming back and saying, hey, we need to adjust our entire mindset, our entire uh, way of training. And we really got to set our guys up for success. You know, and uh, I took over the fire shop uh, shortly after in my career and I started training guys. And I remember you know, when I first started, you know, it's like we had guys that would just stand up, you know, bullets flying and whatnot. And that's the way we trained. We never were taught to move. So I started taking chunks of rock and I, you know, I throw it at the guys and, you know, they're like, Hey, what are you doing? I'm like, Hey man, that's, that's a, that's a bullet coming at you. You know, you got to take cover. So it's like, I started chunking bigger rocks at them if they didn't get it and they learned pretty quick, you know, and it eventually got to the point where, you know, I would take a guy and and this is through, you know, baby step process towards the end of it. I'm sitting there yelling in his face. I'm shooting right by his head. You know, I'm I'm asking him questions. I'm throwing I'm trying to throw him off his game and he's taking cover. Now he's returning fire. He's still talking to the aircraft. He's got multiple radios going on at the same time. And by the time I was done with the guy, 
I, he was literally cool, calm, and collected, and it didn't matter what was going on. He did everything the way he was supposed to, direct air, return fire, uh, stay calm, and also return fire, and at the same time, able to multitask and, you know, control three or four radios at the same time. It, it's, so, it's inc- I mean, really, if, if you're one of the people responsible for that, like, it really is incredible because... A firefight, as everybody, you know, anybody who's been in one, is is pure chaos to begin with. And for somebody calling in air assets that are moving generally super fast at a specific vector and to have a general lay of the land, but it's not like you're in a talk. It's not like you're in a fixed position where you can say, you look at a map and go, here's the enemy, here are our guy. Like, everything is happening so fast. And I've always been so impressed by those guys that could just keep their cool in those times. And, and, you know, pilots. Pilots are always like, even if they're not from the South, they talk like they're from the South. Roger, you know you know what I mean? It's like they always oh, yeah. have that languid kind of, you know, they're not excited. It'd be like they're professionals. They're, you know, yeah. keeping control. Of it. And to have somebody to be able to respond to that when everybody else is yelling and, and everything is just incredible to me. Yeah. Oh man, I, I'll tell you something real quick. Like uh, one of my counterparts is, you know, I, I won't say his last name, but his, you know, his, his name is Brock. <clears throat> um, so in '03, I relieved him out at uh, what was it '03? Anyway, all the timelines kind of blend together. But he was out at Camp Tillman at the time, and I, you know, we were talking about certain things, and you know, he came out, and he's like, "Man, you know, I was in this gunfight, and I was so calm. You know, it's like the guy didn't believe that I was in a gunfight, you know? And <laughs> so I took a break, and I keyed the mic up next to the 50 cal, you know? And, you know, he's like, oh, okay, you, you guys are in a gunfight. It's like, yeah, man. You know, so it's like a, a, a lot of times these guys are so calm that it, it's almost hard to believe that they're in a gunfight, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing because, you know, we talk about, like, you know, in combat, target identification, things like that, and and reacting responsibly or, you know, reacting in a responsive fashion in, in a, you know, nebulous environment, you can kill an innocent, you can kill a civilian, you, you know, like, things can happen because you're just, like, on the go and, and whatnot, and you're making split-second <clears throat> uh, split decisions, and for somebody like with the power of a CCT that has way bigger ramifications to to not maintain that calm and to, you know, to just pull that trigger before you know where the target is and, and identify it, right? Yeah. I mean, battle tracking is huge. Um, obviously, you know, like I work hand in hand with the captain. Uh, the team leader, you know, it's like, you know, if I screw up, he's going to jail, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not going to let him go to jail. Um, and neither, none of our guys want that. So, I mean, we're constantly on it, head on a swivel. Uh, we know where guys are at all the time. Uh, for me, I'm not dropping un- unless I know for a fact that that is the enemy. And, you know, through either... Uh, aircraft identification, uh, visual confirmation, or, you know, I even take it as far as having my grids checked by either one party or a second party, you know, because that is the last thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, and, it, and it, it's chaotic. You know, it is extremely chaotic. But, you know, I mean, it, 
you know, I got 10 aircraft in the sack, 10 sets of aircraft in the sack, you know, each one a flight of two. Um, I got artillery going. Uh, I'm tracking the guys that are shooting and moving. I'm talking to the captain. I'm relaying information to the uh, soda. You know, it's, it's, it's insane what goes on. And for some reason, it's like, you know, we're all trained to track all this. I mean, heck, now I, I, you know, I can't tell you what I did yesterday or an hour, but it's like, you know, as soon as the gunfighting starts, like as soon as the stress levels up, like it's just something snaps, you know, and a lot of it goes back down to how you train um, and obviously experience. It's incredible to me. I mean, I have the, uh, for, you know, you talk, you talk about going to summer school, you know, and, and whatnot. But obviously you're a very bright guy because that's not a job or even air traffic control. That's not a job that most people, even smart people can do effectively. Oh yeah, man. It, it like, you really have to think in a 3d realm. Like, you know, uh, it's funny. I actually took a, a test um, a while back, you know, it, it was the IQ test. And my results were, is that, you know, my, my IQ was a little bit of a above average, but what really set me apart is my ability. And, you know, and I don't know if it's everybody and I don't know if everybody's had these tests and I wish they would administer it to all of them, but my, uh, 3d perception uh-huh. was through the roof uh-huh. and it just so happened that you know, I have to be able to visualize things in a 3D world, especially dealing with air traffic control, artillery, bombs coming, you know, like it got to the point throughout my career is I could point in the direction where there was an aircraft coming. It's like I could almost visualize the bombs flying through the air. I could visualize that aircraft flying through the air. Um, I could visualize where the enemy was. I could visualize where my team was at all times, you know, um, it's, it's a really surreal feeling. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I consider myself a knuckle dragger, but I think, you know, having that ability is what, you know, kind of made me successful. And, you know, I, I think all of us in the soft community have, you know, something of that nature. Otherwise, I, you know, honestly, I don't think we, we would be as successful as we are within these soft realms because you really, it doesn't matter what job you're doing. You have to be able to multitask. You have to be able to take on all these things. And, you know, in a gunfight, in life and death situations. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's what sets us apart. Ish, can uh, you take us through this deployment? Uh, you said 2009 to 2010. You had a pretty eventful one. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, 2009, uh, I'd taken a little break for, for well, not necessarily break. It's, it's just, you know, I hadn't deployed for a couple of years, so. Uh, in 2009 or prior to 2009, I was like, I better get a good deployment. I, I want to go to the hottest place. I want to go to, you know, I, I, I miss the action. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my, uh, senior enlisted leader, E9, you know, chief master and at the time, um, he's like, yeah, I'll send you wherever you want to go. And, you know, I was like, all right, just, I don't care where I go. Just send me to the hottest place. And, you know, my buddy had gotten blown up a month before. So I got recalled. Say, hey, get ready to go. All my bags were packed. Um, Luckily, he didn't sustain uh, major injuries. Uh, He had a nice TBI. 
Captain John Tinsley was killed, though, on that uh, deployment. They hit an IED. Um, everybody else was wounded, um, not severely, but Tinsley, unfortunately, took the brunt of it. And uh, so I deployed. And I mean, you know, as soon as I got there, I got a month orientation and it was totally on. Um, you know, I was kind of developing courses of action as to how to get rid of uh, Tinsley's truck, which was still up on the hill. And obviously, the, the rules of engagement were a hell of a lot different, you know, back then, um, especially during that time where we moved kind of towards the peacekeeping, you know, type of a mission. So <clears throat> so we went up there and we, our plan was to see for it and try to get rid of it because it was kind of a trophy for the Taliban at the time, you know, and so we went up there and, uh, I mean, it, the locals stopped us. So like, Hey, they got this place completely lined with IEDs. Like you guys shouldn't go up there. And we're like, yeah, okay. We, we got it. Thank you. We kind of assumed it. Uh, we were grateful for the warning, you know, so, uh, immediately as soon as we were moving up, we found, you know, eight, nine IEDs right off the bat. So, you know, we're just sitting there marking them. Um, too many to take care of right at that instant. Um, my team had half my team had cleared the village behind us. Uh, half my team was mounted, um, you know, pulling security. Me, the the Bravo and the Charlie decided to push forward looking for more IDs. You know, we're not wasting time, but we need to find these, create a path forward to Tinsley's truck. And as we were going along, I mean, we found number 10, we found number 11, we found number 12, we found number 13. I mean, it was, the whole place was a minefield. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, they, they knew we were going to come back for that truck eventually. Um, so my captain calls me up and he's like, he's looking for me, you know, and he wants me back where he's at near the village. And I'm like, hey, sir, I got a vantage point of the entire terrain. I can see everything. I can do my job from anywhere, you know, all, and he's like, all right, cool. And as soon as I turned around, man, this, uh, IED just blew up in front of us. And, you know, I, I, like, I thought we were all hit, you know, I, first thing I, I thought I was dead. You know, I thought my guys were dead. I mean, it was about 15 to 20 feet in front of us. And I mean, it was just black soot and everything, you know, and, uh, really it was kind of time stood still at that moment. And, uh, so, it, you know, after the pucker factor wears off, you know, it's like, you start realizing, oh shit, I'm alive. You know, you start checking the junk, start checking everything else, mm -hmm. making sure everything is still in place, you know, checking on your buddies. And, you know, I'm, you know, at that point I'm getting lit up and I'm not, you know, I'm still in shock, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm starting to realize like, oh shit, I'm out in the open. Um, it's only a matter of time before I get hit. You know, so I, you know, diving for cover and uh, calling in artillery and starting to try to get the uh, advantage on them. You know, it, um, they had us dead to rights from that hill, uh, but thank God that they always shoot from the hip. Like I'm, like that is the only thing that saved our lives. Is I mean, had, had they actually taken the time to aim, like I mean, we'd we'd have been gone. I wouldn't be here today. You know, neither would they. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, obviously we got the advantage. I started dropping artillery. We ended up getting 64, started slacking dudes. A-10s came along, um, you know, started, uh, they ended up taking cover. They they took cover in a, 
in a uh, cave and the Apaches, uh, which were the, uh, what were they? The, uh, not Danish. Anyway, one of those countries. Uh, probably the uh, Dutch. It, uh, yeah, the Dutch started calling it, calling it in, helping me identify it. You know, they started marking for the A-10s. And, man, the A-10s started dropping bombs on it. They collapsed the entire cave complex. There was about 32 guys in there. We started mowing down all the little uh, the uh, drainage canals that they used for cover. And, I mean, it was just game on. You know, the rest of the crew started uh, coming up next to us. Um, clearing as the eye, you know, clearing up ne- up to our position. We're completely out of ammo, you know. Um, but we we got the advantage and we continue to press forward uh, past our the edge of our white space, so to speak. So you know, we kind of gained ground on that mission. And I mean, it was just one thing after the other. And uh, I mean, you know, it, it it happened so slowly, but at the same time, it was like it was like an eternity. You know, I'm, I'm sure you guys can attest to that. It's like, it's crazy how fast it happens, mm-hmm. but it's also crazy how mm-hmm. slow it feels, you know, and um, 18 hours later or 16 hours later, we're done with the gunfight, you know, heading back home. And I mean, that's how my deployment to Firebase Cobra started, <laughs> you know, and I mean, after that, it was just gunfight after gunfight. We gotten at least one good gunfight a week. Um, you know, I think it was like 16 major gunfights. Um, and I can't remember how many total, but it was, it it was the hottest place on the planet at the time. Um, we lost, uh, one guy a week, if not two on certain, you know, weeks. And, you know, I'm talking about KIA. We're not talking about just wounded, you know, wounded. I couldn't even tell you how many we actually took, but. Uh, so I did nine months at that location, wow. and you know, oh, and, and on on top of it, I broke both my arms and my wrist on that initial contact. You know, it was when when I was getting shot at, I took a dive, and I ended up blocking my fall. Like I'm literally flying Hollywood style through the air, you know, and I blocked my fall with my hands, and uh, so. I ended up with two broken arms and then later on the next year, I ended up with a broken ankle and I have, you know, I still have no idea how the heck I managed it. So, so I just want to slow down for a second. Are you're saying that in the initial salvo or during that you broke your arms and then did you continue to operate radios and call in air support with broken arm, with two broken arms. Oh man, yeah. I mean, you know the <laughs> adrenaline. You know, adrenaline yeah. is kicking. And I remember as soon as I hit the ground, I was like, "Man, this is—I I hit pretty hard," you know. And and you're not really thinking about it, you know. And but I felt that burn. I mean, it was just an intense burn in my right elbow. It, it, what happened was, you know, the ulna and the radial uh, bones ended up crushing into the uh what is it the humerus or whatever yeah, the the humerus. yeah. so it, it it crushed them together you know and so i felt the burn immediately and uh i remember it hurting picking up my gun when i got into position i started returning fire uh my left hand hurt but not quite as much as the right so it, you know i really didn't think twice about it and 
we kept fighting, calling it, you know, I kept calling in cast and all that. And, you know, I remember when 16 hours later, when we finally, it's like, hey, let's get out of here. Let's return to base because we're out of ammo. And by the way, we're freaking tired and the fighting's done, right? Uh, the adrenaline finally wore out and I couldn't even pick up my rifle. And I was like, man, this hurts, you know, and uh, I just wrapped it with an ace bandage and it's just, we kept going, you know, take a little bit of Motrin, right. little, uh, vitamin M. A little vitamin M. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That is crazy. Ish. I, it, it just is baffling to the imagination that you had two broken arms and a broken wrist and you are, you're, you're, you're raising these mic. You're, you're, you're calling in air. You're fighting. You're operating your rifle. It's just so bizarre and and amazing. Um, and I know that you're like, oh, you know, I like, I don't know. I don't think my, you know, I don't think m- much about my awards. But when I hear other people's awards, is sort of. I always think back to that Groucho Marx uh, comment that I would never be a member of a club that would have me as a member, that you never <laughs> think of yourself as the guy. W- was this the, but, the action that you were awarded a silver star for? Yeah, it was, the, the, yeah. It was that gunfight mm-hmm. in particular. Yeah, I, I um, wonder so. why. <laughs> I can't yeah, imagine. I mean, dude, honestly, to me, it, it you know, I, I look at these things and it's like, man, it was – you know, another day, it's, uh, you know, what we train for, it's, you know, it doesn't feel as significant at the as, time. Yeah. Right. I mean, even now I look at it and it's like, man, I was doing my job, but you know, I, I, I look at some of the guys that I've trained, you know, I look at, uh, my buddies that I know and it's like, you know, air force cross recipients, you know, and I'm like, man, that is yeah. wow. You right. know, I'm like at all, I'm like, God, I wish I would have had a mission like that, you know. And then I look at other Silver Star recipients, and I'm like, dude, his shit is way better than mine. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you know. And it's it, it to me, it's business as usual. It's like, yeah, so I did this. So you know, I got in a gunfight. Yeah, they, they shot at us. We shot back. We won. I'm like, I, I broke know, both I, my arms and continued to operate for 16 hours. You know that yeah. that it was just it was just the job, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like I, I'm I'm like a teacher. I'm a hero, well, just and, like teachers. And so that uh, it sounds like that deployment was pretty intense. I mean, how did how did things you know go on as you kind of got deeper into that? What did you say it was nine months that you were over there? Oh man, it was uh, it was one thing after the other. You know, and uh, we kept on uh, continuing our fights, continuing to push on. Um, there was a uh, uh, a few other incidents that occurred. You know. Uh, as they do, you may, you may have heard about the minibus incident uh, where McChrystal apologized, and uh, well, who was it? who was the president of time? Obama, I think. Everybody came out and apologized, and it's like, no, they were bad guys. You know, we killed bad guys, but because the third vehicle was carrying not bad guys, let's just put it that way. Um, you know, they kind of started. Uh, uh, you know, putting the kibosh on us, they kind of started uh, restricting the amount of ordinance that we could drop, you know, the mm. it, basically our freedom of movement, you know. Yeah. I mean, but we still gotten, we got in a lot of gunfights, you know, and um, halfway through it, uh, 
I was my team was replaced by a first group team, you know, and don't get me wrong, I, that seventh group team was amazing. I mean, all these guys are professionals. They were they were awesome. The entire uh, however many gunfights we were in, no, first group know. came. First group came in, and uh, you know it started up again. I mean, we were those those guys having no experience were quick to learn. Um, a lot of uh, firefights involving you know we're chasing after them. They're coming after us. It's like we're flanking them. They're trying to flank us. And I mean the the, the whole deployment, it was you know just intermittent gun battles. Every single, you know, couple of days at a minimum once a week for the entire nine months. I mean, it's just, uh, it was like the wild, wild west. Yeah. And the Taliban, you know, you talk about the minibus uh, thing, and I, I don't remember that. But one thing that I do know is the Taliban was great at PR and, and they understood, they understood how our government would respond uh, anytime they waged a PR campaign and said that, you know, innocents were killed. And and unfortunately, sometimes innocents were killed. But a lot of times, it was just a Taliban-led effort where they could say American forces just came in and did this thing. And then whomever was the president or whatever would, like, stop. They would just stop dead, you know, the, the actions on. And then it, it would inhibit everybody's ability to fight. Oh, yeah. I mean, they know. They know, you know, right. and... Even when they're moving, you know, they'll they'll position women, they'll position kids, they'll ride with women and kids, you know. And so if something does happen, if they do get hit, it's like right. it's it's it, it's a, uh, a political campaign that they run. Right. And they know it's going to make headlines. And, you know, the American population is oblivious to it. They have no concept of what's going on. And, you know, they buy into it all the time. Our politicians um don't have the nutsack, for lack of a better word, you yeah. know, to kind of come out and say, hey, this is how they roll. These are their tactics, right. techniques, and procedures. And, so, and you know. a lot of times it seemed as though our media would uncritically just accept, accept their claims and report it as oh, fact, yeah. right? That, that there was no actual investigation into it. Um, it was the same thing that we talked about with the Marine Raiders, right, or, or the MARSOC. Mm. And it, it almost got them disbanded. But in then, that case, it was the military itself that was right, right. Um, so, you know, you going back to the to the first firefight. Did you guys have air on station at the time, or did you have to wait for it? No, uh, I I tried to coordinate rotary wing beforehand. You know, with it, I always do. I always have them uh, come in about you know a couple of hours after we've departed to kind of to, uh, keep that element of surprise. Um, but we, we had none at the time. Um, you know, we went in there, uh, totally non, ex not expecting a gunfight, you know, expecting IEDs. Yeah. But we did not expect a gunfight. Uh, but man, you know, th there was, you know, uh, cast flying overhead, just different regions. Uh, but the heels were the first to respond. Um, we had organic, artillery at our fire base and that was kind of at their limit you know yeah uh, anything outside of that would have required a wraparound or something but uh no uh the the dutch uh responded immediately uh and then you know again i don't you know at the time i don't know i don't have a sense of time but um the a-10 showed up 
Um, and then it was just rocking and rolling from there. So this is something I don't think we've ever talked about on our show. Can you tell people sort of the difference between like what fixed wing is, what rotary wing is, and then what dedicated assets are versus like being out there and having and waiting on assets? Yeah. So uh, fixed wing is you know any kind of uh, close air support flat uh, platform. That, uh, you know, like an airplane type, you know, like uh, a fixed wing is just, you know, bombers, uh, A-10s, um, gunships, um, uh, fighter jets, you know. And then the rotary wing is anything helicopter, anything with rotors. Um, then you have cast, you have uh, on-call cast, which basically if you get in a predicament, if you, you know, make contact, either you can prepare uh, and have them ready to send you something or start looking for any kind of air assets, any close air support assets that are uh, within your area that can make it to you. Um, and then you, that's all on call. Um, so basically you have to get in that situation and then you, you know, declare troops in contact and they'll send you those air assets wherever they can pull them from. Um and then you have your uh, your planned air assets. So, you know, you're, it, it, I send up those requests, and they're already pre-coordinated. Um, I can set up either from the time I depart my firebase, or I can say, hey, we plan to be at this position at, you know, whatever time. Uh, I need you to show up at this time. And, you know, a lot of times you don't want to, like me, myself, I didn't want to pre-plan cast because then that steals uh, air support from someone else. Um, but you always have some sort of asset flying around in the event that, you know, something does happen. Um, so then it becomes on call. So when I request, you know, at, at, at that particular situation, um, we got in a gunfight, I requested air assets, they pushed whatever was available to me. Um, and then, you know, behind the scenes, you have the TACPs working additional assets like, okay, Let's start launching, you know, whoever's on, on alert. Uh, let's start pulling these assets in case the situation develops even more, which, you know, in our situation, it did. Sure. Um, so they're constantly feeding me guys without me having to call them, you know. And then once we're done, once, you know, the fighting's over, it's like, okay, uh, you know, we're constantly sending the information back. And it's like, hey, uh, we haven't taken fire in so long or whatever the case is. Uh, we're ending the troops in contact right now. Um, so then they start tapering back on those air assets and they either send them back where they are supposed to be or they send them back to whoever originally requested them. But <clears throat> that's the primary difference. And were you ever, because I think one of the challenges that people understand sometimes is that, you know, when you're talking about like tier one assets, you know, that, that and they have this dedicated error. When you're out there and you don't have like dedicated, have you ever been in situations where because you had multiple troops in contact or the or the area of operations was very hot that it was challenging to get air? You know, I, I've never been in that situation, honestly. Um I think our uh, TACB brethren do an amazing job getting air assets overhead. You know, I think uh, the only time I've ever uh, been limited 
by uh, aircraft is during inclement weather. Um, okay. Obviously, uh, aircraft can't take off. You know, uh, aircraft can't, uh, you know, see you on the ground or whatever. And, you know, I have dropped through the through weather, but if you can't take off and you can't land in, you know, wherever they're taking off from, really, that's my only limiting factor. Other than that, you know, our, our, our brethren, um, I mean, they do their job and they do it extremely well, um, you know, because they know it's life and death. And then, you know, next deployment, it could be them, you know. Um, so, yeah, I've never been faced with that situation, particularly. So your uh, your next deployment was 2011. You said that was your last one and also a little dicey. Yeah. So uh, my that deployment ended in 2000, uh, June of 2010. And, you know, I, I mean, I wanted to go back, uh, shortly thereafter. So, um, I came home, rested for a little bit, refitted. Um, and I went back in January of 2011 and, uh, this time was out by a Terran cow. So, uh, <laughs> I only did two missions. Um, and you know, the, the first mission was two weeks after arriving in country. And man, that was a week long gunfight. Um, as soon as we got in, you know, in the bad guy territory, spotted a couple guys laying IEDs. Uh, we chased them down, tried to shoot them. You know, obviously we didn't catch them. Found the IED, kind of started following them in the direction that they were driving, end up in a cemetery. And I mean, we just fought it out close L ambush, you know, and, uh, it, it was fun. You know, it, 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 this is what my, uh, uh, what is it? 10th deployment. So it was like, I mean, it, at that point it just starts getting fun after a while, you know, it's still scary as shit. Don't get me wrong, but, <laughs> sure. but it, it, you know, it, it's like you find a lot of, uh, enjoyment in it, you know, and, uh, we ended up, holding up at, at, uh, at our strong point area, you know, fighting through a cemetery, dropping bombs. And I mean, it was having to call guys out uh, another team to come out and draw, essentially draw fire so that we can get out of there, you know, and hopefully survive, you know? Um, but yeah. And, and then two weeks later we turned around and, you know, they're like, Hey, we need you guys to go back into the same area. So, you know, two weeks later we turn around and, you know, went, you know, we went in through a different, uh, direction, you know, and I mean, it was, it turned out to be a 21 day running gun battle, like literally a running gun battle. And, it, you know, it's, it's like you plan for something, but I don't think I've ever executed a plan and it go according to plan right, my entire right. career. It's like shit changes all the time. Right. And so in this 21 day running gun battle, were you guys, I mean, obviously you guys had to get resupplied, like, uh, you run out of ammo after, you know, a, an hour. Um, what, like, how, how does this work for you guys? Oh, so, <laughs> man, we were resupplied uh, three different times in those 21 days. So, obviously, our, our, our plan went to crap. <laughs> So, uh, you know, we, we were supposed to have two elements, one on the east side, one on the west west side. We were supposed to, you know, move together and push all the forces out, you know, south. 
And I mean, we started getting blown up. Uh, we started taking fire. Like, you know, it, we never really got to even begin to execute the plan as, as we were planning it. Um, so we decided to strong point a building. And I mean, you know, uh, what was it? Three days into it, we ran in, we ran out of grenades. We, you know, we were in a grenade war, like a trench war. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was raining. It was freezing. It was sleeting. You know, we're fighting in the mud. We're fighting in trenches. We're dropping bombs through the weather. And I mean, if, if, you know, for people who don't know what dropping bombs through the weather is, the aircraft can't see you on the ground. They can't see the target. They can't see where you're at. Um, they're basically dropping on the grid coordinates and trusting you, you know, and I'm trusting them at the same time. Um, so we're literally, you know, literally fighting and seeing the whites of their eyes. And we run out of ammo. Um, as soon as it clears up, you know, we get uh, a couple of uh, C-130s. They're flying low to the earth. And they're literally, as soon as they get over where I want them to drop, they beeline it up and everything just comes down in four parachutes, four different pallets. Um, If you don't know what the size of a pallet is, it's, I mean, what is it, roughly a five by five, you know, cubed. um, And it's all full of ammunition. Yeah. So four different pallets. Three different resupplies. That's a whole lot of ammo throughout the whole process. So, I mean, it was. So they were, they, so for people, just to give people an image. So these C-130s, which are propeller airplanes, are flying very close to the ground. And then when they get ready to drop their air bundle, they basically go as straight up as they can. So that those bundles essentially drop straight down. Because they can't control them once they leave the aircraft. They, those shoes can get caught by the wind. Like, they can go anywhere. But they're trying to set them straight down to you guys so you don't have to, like, fight your way to your ammunition. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, uh, typically, you know, we drop them at about, you know, five to 600 feet above ground level. Well, the problem with that is that, you know, the wind could carry them off. Uh, they're not always going to land within close proximity. And in situations like that, you literally want them to drop on a dime. So as they're coming in low and fast, you know, I'm telling them exactly where to drop it. And as soon as they get over that position, they're beelining it up as straight as they can so that it drops in that exact position. And, you know, me and my team don't have to go out there and put ourselves at risk in you know pulling these bundles up you know it's not like we have equipment to pull them out you know right. it's like as soon wherever they land is where we're unpackaging them and we're taking them into our strong point um and then you know rearming ourselves that's so crazy and how did they do how did those c-130 pilots do oh they were on it i mean spot on every single one of the guys every single resupply was literally spot on exactly where i wanted it it's that's incredible so how, how did that mission uh go on as you get can i i mean we're talking about what three weeks here uh yeah. what, what was that like i mean as it drags on longer and longer i mean i imagine the guys aren't sleeping very well everyone's strung out you know as time goes on well you know uh so 
Absolutely. That is the case. You know, we, we started out really good. But our guys, I mean, you know, our dudes are awesome. They're amazing. Um, we have a tendency to fight a hell of a lot longer. But the our partner force, however, you know, a lot of times they can't handle the duration. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we're fighting, um, you know, we took a lot of casualties right off the get-go. Um, we took casualties not even having made it to our objective. And so, you know, I, I, I can't give you an accurate count of how many of our partner force we lost. You know, we, we went in with about 90 guys. Um, I say all in all, KIA and wounded, we lost about 30 um, in the first weeks, you know, with, uh, possibly second week. You know, my, my numbers are a little bit, uh, my memory is a little bit sketch when it comes to all those numbers. But um, we hit IEDs along the way. Um, and we would always go and tend to the wounded. We would always drag the wounded out. Um, so as we're going through, our guys, obviously we're tired, you know, we're, we're, but we're holding it together. Uh, but as we go along, our partner force isn't really handling it quite as well. So their, their will to fight is kind of diminishing, um, there's a few of them that continue to fight, but the vast majority do not. A lot of them are scared because they've lost a lot of the counter uh, counterparts. Um, I mean, hell, about uh, about halfway through it, we even had uh, our guys try to shoot. Uh, it was myself, uh, the second JTAC, uh, and our two medics. We were exfilling one of our medics because he was actually pretty close to one of the IEDs, and he got a pretty bad concussion. So um, it was kind of a, a green on blue. In hindsight, I think they were trying to get rid of us so that they could go home. You know, mm. and this is all completely after the fact. And it's like, man, that was uh, kind of odd because I kind of alerted everybody. It's like, hey, there's a helicopter coming. Uh, we need to get this guy out. Uh, it will be, you know, and we were all there. I'm like, we're all going to go outside our strong point, but it still happened, you know. And then uh, fast forward as the days go by, I mean, it got to the point where we were in a Mexican standoff. Um, it was them pointing guns at us, and our guys were pretty calm. You know, we there was no guns pointed at us. From our end, there was no guns pointing at our partner force, but, you know, me and uh, the team sergeant were up on the hill pulling overwatch. And uh, I looked over and I saw our uh, counterparts commander pointing an AK at my commander, you know, my alpha, our team captain. And so I'm like, shit, you know, so I put my scope on the partner force's head and I radio down and I'm like, hey, you know, bro, like I have him just say the word, you know, and our captain was like, nobody do shit. <laughs> nobody make a move. And he diffused the situation, you know, which was, which was awesome. And, you know, I came down off the hill and I'm like, man, we got to get rid of these guys. Like we need to replace them. So we, uh, you know, I requested uh, 47 to come in, get that partner force out and send us fresh, 
uh, fresh guys. So, you know, it, it happened that night, but I mean, it was just, uh, the fighting was so intense and it was just so long that our guys were, our guys did amazing. You know, it was probably one of the, one of the best teams I've ever worked with. You know, they were professional. Um, they did their job. I mean, it was from communications to, I mean, execution to, to it, it, it worked like magic. It was amazing. Everything that, it, you know, that I've ever wanted and like, hey, keep me abreast of the situation, it happened. Um, but unfortunately, our partner force was not on the same playing field that we were in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they they, they were the biggest, um, I guess, slim fact, you know, in, in the whole situation. You know, they were the biggest uh they just didn't want to play ball right and but the, the you know the the entire 21 days was kind of like that and you know yeah we didn't sleep no you know i think i slept the least just because i'm constantly you know calling in air i'm constantly talking to aircraft uh my jtac the alternate jtac helped me out a lot but you know at the end of the day it's like i kind of felt like it was my responsibility so you know i took on probably more than I should have, but you know, it was, it was just an amazing time. You know, it was, it was, it was an amazing time. The entire process. You know, it's interesting because I I think there's really a fascinating point because you say it was an amazing time and you say it was fun. And I totally understand that. And maybe a lot of our civilian viewers and listeners don't understand that. Can, can you, can you talk about that experience? Why is that? Even though, you're fighting for your life. You're sleep deprived. You know, you're you're running on the ragged edge, a razor's edge, really. Why is that fun and, and why is that how you, you know it yeah, it it's it's an interesting thing because I don't think obviously you guys understand, you know, uh our military brothers who have been in gunfights who have been you know, downrange, they completely understand. But, you know, the civilian population, I think they have a, a really hard time, you know, understanding that uh, it's not gunfights to me. Um, you know, they're incredibly fun. They're incredibly scary. Um, I mean, it, it's just think about every single emotion you've ever had in your entire life and combine it, mm-hmm. you know, take the greatest, take the happiest, take, you know, you're fighting for your life and it's every single emotion mixed into one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're doing something fun. You're doing something exciting. You're doing something that could possibly kill you, you know, and, 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 the adrenaline, I mean, how do I describe it? It's a uh, every single emotion rolled into one, mm-hmm. and it's fun and it's scary. But it's like you know, once you return to the civilian world, once you you try to talk to anybody, they can't fathom it because you know it's it, it's it's truly being alive. It's understanding death. It's understanding life. It's having a purpose mm-hmm. for life. 
you know, and going through those situations, it's like, you know, having a complete understanding of what living and life is, how precious life is, and how quickly it can be taken away from you. You know, it's just, it's everything rolled up into one. It's like the ultimate experience. You know, it's interesting because I just got the image of um, sort of a civilian counterpart in a way. Uh, and maybe this will make sense to you uh, and and Jack and, and our other like veteran listeners is that if you think of a roller coaster, right? There are people that get forced to go onto a roller coaster by people who are like, let's go. And they don't want it. And, th- and those... <laughs> And, and right. And then there are people who go on roller coasters and enjoy them, but are like, okay, that was really scary. I don't think I'm going to go again, or I'll go again, but I'm really scared. And then there are people that at the very top will raise their hands. Right. And then, and then go down. It's like, fuck yeah. Like, yeah, I'm terrified, but like, this is it. And, and that sort of the people who raise their hands and keep on doing it again are it. That's the civilian equivalent in a way to the people in, not just soft, but even the conventional, the conventional people side who go back over that are like, again. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. Right. Yeah. It's like, this is what it is. This is what yep. life is about. It's like pushing that edge and feeling that fear and coming through the other side. I, I know that was uh that was your last deployment ish, um, but there, there's actually uh, another one I wanted to ask you about. Um, that's a little, a, a little interesting. Um, it was about the, your deployment to Columbia and that's um, obviously a totally different theater, totally different experience than Afghanistan. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, um, you know, that was a time where I, I decided to, I, I wanted to take a break from deploying. I wanted to take a break from basically everything, you know, because by that point I was pretty, uh, I was smoked. I'd broken my back, um, you know, uh, <laughs> my marriage was on the rocks. It's like, like I, I, I just wanted a break, but it just never happened, you know? And, um, this opportunity came down. Well, it wasn't really much of an opportunity, but I got, you know, I was chosen because of my Spanish, my Spanish abilities. And so I was sent down to South America and, you know, obviously the, the, the details of the job, I really can't go into specifics. Um, but, you know, going down to South America, obviously coming from nothing but desert deployments, um, was a completely different world. And uh, I didn't get to see the fun parts of Colombia. You know, I always hear people talking about Colombia, and it's like, yeah, it was a blast, right? And when, you know, when they talk to me, they're like, oh my god, that's so awesome. I'm like, no, dude. I'm like, my experience. <laughs> You're like, I wasn't Secret Service. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. We can yeah. <laughs> didn't get invited to those parties. Yeah, I didn't go to those parties. You yeah, know? Um, I, you know, I I spent my entire month in the jungle, and uh, I I ended up losing twenty five pounds, um, and it was I was literally wet. I'm talking shower, just got out of the shower, type wet, right? But I was also literally in the middle of a triple canopy jungle, mm-hmm. and we were looking for bad guys, and there was a possibility of a gunfight. And obviously, you know, the the I you know I can tell you that I never got into a gunfight in the jungle, 
but just having had to live there, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I started, uh, it, it, and let me let me preface it was with with it, that environment was probably one of the greatest experiences of my life, uh, simply because you know you can imagine a jungle, but I'm talking this is triple canopy. I'm talking as soon as it starts getting dark, you're stopping mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. as soon as it's dark, you're screwed. Yeah. You can't see like anything in front of your face, even with NVG. Right, you're not seeing anything. Yeah, because there's no ambient light coming down. No ambient light. Yeah. It is just pitch black. Yeah. You know, and and uh, like you can't fathom this. You can't even imagine this unless you've actually been there. And, you know, it is so freaking loud. It is. I mean, it is loud at night. It is loud during the day. It is deafening how loud it is. And, you know, to it, to me, I feel like, you know, most people will never get to see this part of the jungle. Mm-hmm. We'll never get mm-hmm. to experience this part, you know. But uh, for me, having lived there for a month, it's like, wow, it, it is an amazing experience. Having, you know, had to learn how to survive, having learned that, you know, you have to drink at every, ch- especially not being acclimated. You got to drink as much as you can. You got to stay hydrated, you know. Mm-hmm. My partner force that we were with, they're like, hey, you have to stop drinking. And I'm like, bro, you know, and in Spanish, I'm like, bro, you don't understand. If I stop drinking, I'm dead. If I stop sweating, I'm dead. You know, and they, they couldn't understand that concept. But, you know, uh, above all else, like it made me think about the guys in Vietnam, you know, the guys that have actually had to fight wars in the jungle type of environment and mm-hmm. i was like i was taken back i'm like man okay so i'm just walking through i've never made contact you know i i didn't make contact the entire time but i'm like i'm sucking this bad right now and imagine being in vietnam yeah and imagine being in the same type of conditions and now I have to fight for my life. Right. Like, now, I mean, it was just, it was amazing. It was, it was, I mean, it gave me contact. a whole different perspective. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Moving to contact in that environment, not with just the environmental factors or of, of the underbrush and overgrowth, like all that, but just the physical toll it takes on your body. Yeah. Yeah. Having to deal with trench foot, having to deal with, you know, just completely soaking wet the entire time. You know, it's, it's just, I was taken back. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because we, we've, we're fortunate. We get a a number of guys, you know, both from, you know, the South African comp or from the African conflicts and from Vietnam on our show, but there's really no way to appreciate what they went through because it was an completely, like when they tell us stories, I know Jack and I are both like, well, like Afghanistan and Iraq were one thing, but but moving through Vietnam, like n- never knowing, you can't see what's going on. You like you don't know where things are happening, and then the environmental factors are another thing that are just like beating those guys to hell. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, like. Um... Uh, I've had a, a lot of friends like, uh, you know, for example, L.D. Cox, 
he was a survivor of the USS Indianapolis. You know, it's the guys whose, you know, boat got sunk and like literally they were getting eaten by sharks. Um, uh, 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 Colonel Cole, he was Doolittle's uh, co-pilot. You know, they're the guys who dropped the atomic bomb, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Like I've had a lot of Vietnam guys and, you know, I meet them. Um, most have unfortunately passed, you know, both LD Cox and Colonel Cole have passed away, but, you know, I meet these guys and they're like, man, you guys had it hard. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, in, in my mind. Right. Right. I'm like, they think that we had it so hard. And I'm like, bro, like if we have all this technology, we have all these warmies for one, we have all this stuff to make our lives a hell of a lot more comfortable, even during war. I'm like, you guys, like, just sucked it up. Yeah. Like, you, you know, you guys were the greatest generation. You guys fought in Vietnam. You guys fought in the Korean War. You know, it, but they think that we had it hard. Right. I'm like, you know, I'm like, no, like, you dudes had it hard. Right. Yeah, like, we you, have you, not experienced things like the Bataan Death March, the Frozen Chosen you know, a lot of the events like in Vietnam, you know, the, the Tet Offense, you know, the, these events. I mean, look, we had guys go through Fallujah. I was never there, but we had, you know, Marine, we had soldiers go through Fallujah. Like they, we've had events, but, but th- there are definitely markers in our own like military history that I think modern veterans can look back on and go, how the fuck did they do that? Oh, yeah. Ish, uh, this was, uh, you know, at this point, you know, your career's starting to wind down. You're getting closer to retirement. Can you tell us about, you know, how you retired from the Air Force and, and what your experience was like transitioning to civilian life? Yeah, you know, uh, so I, I, I retired. Uh, I was medically retired um, right before COVID actually I started my med board process oh, right wow. before okay. COVID hit so uh, um, you know and uh, at the same time you know I'd, I'd had a uh, valley fever so my lungs were pretty messed up and you know I spent three months on bed rest uh, and then I started recovering from that and you know then uh, uh, we had a baby so I, I took some paternal leave and then immediately after that after I went to work uh, COVID hit so then shortly after that, they're like, hey, stay home. Um, my med board process time, you know, it was like, okay, you're, you're, you're getting medically uh, retired. So, you know, I didn't work for about the first six months, but or th- the last six months of my career. But, I mean, it was hard. You know, it, it's like, you know, going 100 miles an hour and then now all of a sudden you're, you're not doing anything. You know, now it's uh, your career is ending. Um I kind of had the the uh, the benefit of slowing down a little bit uh, prior to me retiring. It's actually been a few years, you know. And I got I got hurt pretty good in 2010, 2011. Got hurt a little bit more, and then I started my surgeries in 2012. So I kind of had a uh, a little bit of time to get adjusted to it but you know i don't think anything actually prepares you for uh that final day although you know it felt like freedom you know 
you know, I retired as an EA, you know, E6, E7s, anybody in the military, you know, they, they, your entire career, for one, you can't get fired, you know, and if you do, you're just probably shipped off to somewhere else. But it's like you carry a lot of weight behind your rank, regardless of where you're at, you know, and what I found it, what I found interesting was when I finally retired, you know, and uh, becoming a civilian, it's like, it doesn't matter who you are, who you were, mm-hmm. what rank you held, what position you held, you're done. Yeah. It's all gone. Like all your friends, uh, the influence you had, it doesn't, none of that matters. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I had one of the hardest times with, you know, and um, it's like, okay, I, you know, I went from, someone who had the ability to speak their mind and, you know, I had a little bit of an audience and, you know, I could actually influence some sort of change for the better, you know, to now you're like, Oh, you're a civilian. Um, doesn't matter what you say, what you think, what you're trying to change. You're a civilian. You're out uh-huh. now, you know, and to me, that was the biggest shock. Um, it, it, it's like you completely, completely lose whatever status you had in the military active duty overnight. Yeah. And at the same time, civilians don't care. Like they don't care. I mean, look, I don't, I don't know how many people have won two silver stars, but I I can assure you that it's not a lot. And that's not going to get you a job anywhere. Like, civilians nope. don't care about what you did in the military unless the qualifications meet the job they're trying to hire. But everything that you did, it doesn't matter that you were in a 21-day running gun battle with free combat, air, you know, resupplies. They don't care. Yeah, absolutely. So you're in this, like, nebulous world, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you transition or make a new life for yourself? Uh, you know, honestly, like, you know, I, I, I contemplated going into the corporate world. Uh, I contemplated getting, uh, you know, a desk job. Um, but it's kind of hard because, you know, my entire career has never actually felt like a job. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never felt like work. Like, honestly, I have a hard time quantifying what work really is, mm-hmm. you know, um, but, it, it, you know, now it, it you know, even even uh, my better half was like, you're not going to survive a desk job. So it's like, you actually have to talk to people. You have to cater to people. You have to bend over backwards for their feelings. You can't boss people around anymore. You can't set realistic goals and, and hold them accountable. I'm like, what? You know? <laughs> So, you know, really, I started gravitating more towards work with, you know, people that I know, uh, same people with the same background. Um, For me, it's just hard to adapt to the the regular world. You know, it's kind of like opening up Pandora's box. Like, Mm -hmm. you can't close it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Civilians are on a completely different level if they've never been through or have experienced or have an open mind to it or anything like that. It's just... Mm -hmm. It's extremely hard. 
Mm-hmm. So what what have you been doing since retirement? Uh, I went to work for uh, uh, our schoolhouse as uh, cool uh, uh, for a little bit and started training and mentoring guys for a little bit. Um, I was let go from that job um, under weird, weird circumstances. Um, basically, somebody got butthurt over something that I said, which had nothing to do with them, but they got butthurt anyway, you know. And whatever, it's their problem. I'm not sour about it. I'm not pissed, you know, and I'm like, whatever. It, it It's not going to kill me. Nobody's dying. That's my philosophy, you know, that I live by now. It's not killing me. Nobody's right, dying. Right. It's not that bad, you know, um, which I have them to thank for because now, you know, I'm, I'm doing a security gig, um, which the customer wants to remain kind of a little bit anonymous. Sure. And I'm making twice what the hell the other company was paying me for. So I'm like, thank you. You know, yeah. I was getting ready to take leave without pay anyway. So it doesn't really matter to me. But um, it's it, it, it just society is becoming so sensitive that it's yeah. like, you know, even these big badass operators are getting butt hurt over the most trivial things, you know. Yeah, but, you, you can't say something's fucked up when it's fucked up. Like you ought to be oh, able yeah, to, yeah, you yeah. ought to be able to point to it and say, "Yeah, it's, that's messed up." Exactly. You know, the, it, we grew up in the days where you know my commander had an open policy. He's like, "Hey, you can come in here and tell me I'm fucked up, but if you're going to come in here and tell me how I'm fucked up, it's like you better have a possible solution. Like, don't just come in here and whine. Tell me how to fix it. You know, and now nobody wants to hear that anymore." Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, my new company is amazing. Uh, they're they're all about respect. They're all about treat, treating everybody uh, mutually, you know, with, with, with the same respect and, you know, talking about it. They have open door policies. It's it's amazing. It's an amazing company, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it's basically the security business and I'm loving it. Um, plus, you know, they give me a lot of days off and the pay is amazing. And, you know, when I'm not working, I'm a full-time dad to three little guys and they consume my time yeah which i love yeah <laughs> that's awesome that's it, great it, um where can where can people find you wish if they're looking for you uh if they want to maybe hire you for a security gig or or whatever else you're you're offering at the time uh i'm on linkedin mm-hmm. um uh, and i can't re- even remember my handle but i'm also on instagram at uh ish underscore vs underscore cct and i'm on facebook under ish viegas i don't do twitter um you know i don't do any other social media or whatnot i'm good for I'm not you. as active as i used to be yeah good i don't do social media either like i'm horrible <laughs> at it um it's just i don't know um ish you're you're an amazing fucking dude you're you know an amazing human being we deeply appreciate you. Um, your company, whoever they are, need to pay you twice as much as they're paying you now, even if it's good. Pay. I wish. I know, <laughs> right? Um, you're such a testament, honestly, to like the human spirit. And and I, I look <clears throat> for anybody who is running a big ass company out there. A man who's going to break both of his arms and continue driving on with the mission for 18 hours is a person that you want to work with. So 
fucking bring Ish on board. Like, I, I, I'm just so impressed by you as a human being, as an, and as an operator, an airman, uh, you know, an American. Nice brother. I appreciate it, man. Um, and I got great respect for all our boys, all our, you know, men and women, um, all our soft brethren, like, you know, you sign on that dotted line and, you know, you're basically you're writing a blank check and you're saying you're willing to give everything up, you know, and, and some of us do, some of us have given it all up, you know, for this country. I mean, it's just an honor to have served. It's an honor to have served with so many heroes. You know, my heroes are not these football players. They're not these movie stars. They're not these singers. They're these guys with my, two silver. They're these guys with two silver stars who drive on through the objective-ish. That's who our heroes are. <laughs> Thanks, man. But, uh, but yeah, man. Yeah, that, thank you so much for joining us on a, on a Friday evening-ish and uh, and and uh, your patience with some of our technical problems this evening, which is a little unusual. Uh, we will be back on Monday. Yeah, Monday we'll be back. Uh, we're going to have a, uh, a retired JSOC operator on the show. Um, looking forward to speaking to him. Ish, again, thank you so much, man. And, uh, you know, please stay in touch. Yeah, thank you guys for having me, man. It's been a blast. Absolutely. Ish, hold, hold on one second after we break. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.